0: In case you haven't already heard, Netflix is in trouble. Tax trouble, that is. The Italian tax authorities, and many of us in here know how friendly they can be, have launched an investigation into the company for alleged tax evasion. Netflix, however, says the claim is ridiculous. Actually, bogus is the term that they used, because the company has no physical presence in the country. Or do they? According to Italian prosecutors, the company's cables and computer servers, which do call Italy home, actually constitute a physical presence. Say what? Hello, everyone. I'm Matthew DeMello, your host of The Fiona Show, Cross-Border Solutions' weekly transfer pricing podcast. Today, we're recording from beautiful Sarasota, though admittedly, we're not at the beach. In fact, we're wasting this beautiful Floridian sunshine sitting inside the Ritz-Carlton's conference room, but we have zero complaints. Why, you ask? Because today's Fiona Show superstar makes the sacrifice worth it. And let's be honest, that beach isn't going anywhere. You may know her from her work at Bloomberg's Transfer Pricing Report, where she covers transfer pricing in the United States and around the globe, or maybe you've caught her byline on Law 360, perhaps sounding off on the Ninth Circuit Court's stinging Amazon ruling, or about how the ATO isn't sure of its task force's exact effect on tax compliance, or the potential impacts of tax policy on economic growth in India, China, and Brazil. When it comes to transfer pricing, tax journalist and Law 360 contributing editor Molly Moses knows it all. She's built her tax and transfer pricing foundation, interviewing Economists and key government officials for more than 20 years. She has covered the infamous DHL transfer pricing trial and her investigative reporting on conflicts between the United States and Canada, changed the way the countries handle international tax cases, and was included in the book, Journalism That Matters, which examines major government and industry changes driven by diehard reporting. Today, she's going to speak with us about how the digital economy is redefining the term permanent establishment and what that could mean for transfer pricing. On behalf of Cross-Border Solutions, and who knows, maybe on behalf of Netflix too, let's get started. Australian tax office is at it again amidst a crackdown in abuses ranging from capital gains to the land down under general. And by general, we mean cutthroat tax avoidance provisions. The tax authority is now putting intangible assets under the superpowered microscope. The thing is, according to Australian tax law, the ATO commissioner has the power to disregard actual commercial and financial relations, also known as reality, in order to determine whether or not an MNE is acting. in accordance with the arm's length principle you see the ato likes to operate under the assumption australia is a submarine made of swiss cheese it's swimming in taxable dollars but nothing is staying in the boat whether or not that's actually true intangibles just so happens to be the latest push to plug in all the holes the point is you need to have your international arrangements in order and ready for probing or er, uh, i mean plugging we're used to hearing about name brands and big tech getting entangled in messy court battles over transfer pricing, but McDonald's, that's right, the golden arches are in the crosshairs. Brazil's Administrative Tribunal for Tax Appeals, or CARF, delivered a controversial ruling in a split decision against McDonald's for the Brazilian subsidiary's payments made under cost-sharing agreements between 2012 and 13. Originally, payments were remitted for various admin and management costs ranging from human resources to strategy design. But Brazilian tax authorities insist they should have been treated as, quote, technical services and technical assistance in administrative and related costs, thus subject to the 15 percent withholding tax. The issue with that argument, according to a dissent penned by Judge Luciana Zanin, is that it ends up treating the terms reimbursement and service providing as the same when they shouldn't be. McDonald's tried to point out that prior rulings treated similar payments as no big deal, or in other words, as a return to the equity of the pay, leaving the beneficiary to file the tax return. But in the end, Carve sided with tax authorities ruling all payments are to be treated as income and thus subject to the withholding tax. However, the jury's still out on whether Fries will come with that very large order of legalese and disappointment. And last week, we profiled various stories amounting to worldwide cacophony over digital service taxes. But good news for people who love silver linings. In a notable demonstration of global solidarity and commitment to getting something over the the finish line. More than 130 nations in the OECD's inclusive framework agreed to move forward with Pillar One as the basis for global digital service taxes set for adoption by the end of 2020. If you've been listening to our long-form sister podcast, The Fiona Show, lately, consensus among experts appears to be that Pillar One is the substantially bigger shit show of the two. But this multilateral step was enough to put fighting words in the mouths of authorities chomping at the bit to take their slice of Big Tech's enormous Profits pie, pushing the global goodwill ahead of his country's presidency over the upcoming G7 summit. French Finance Minister Bruno Le Maire spent last week raising the rhetorical ante, taxing corporations along the lines of the unified approach he insisted is imperative to quote saving capitalism. So, uh, no pressure, OECD members. But I guess the fate of the global economic order rests uh, squarely on your shoulders. I think. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big name consultant. Again, apologies, big four stay in compliance and on, budget with cross-border solutions ai-driven transfer pricing software it's no wonder we're the global leader in ai-driven tax solutions there we go again i'm so sorry big you know what wait who am i kidding sign up for a free demo of cross-border solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp that's xbs.ai slash tp Welcome, Molly. It's a pleasure to have you here, and I will hand things over to Mimi.
1: Yes, Molly, very, very happy to have you here. And, uh, you know, true story— when I was a transfer pricing analyst, like many many years ago, I do remember reading articles published by a writer named Molly Moses. So I remember seeing her name in all these, like up-to-date articles regarding transfer pricing. So it's it's very nice to put a face to the name after these many years. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Not to date us. So so, uh, so a couple of questions j- just to kick it off, uh, Molly. We want to understand how. how How did you get into writing about international tax and transfer pricing? Um, It
2: was pretty random, actually. I was an English major, and uh, I wound up um, working at the U.S. tax court in a secretarial position just because I was looking for work in D.C. and had Hmm. taken the civil service exam, and the personnel director at the tax court just looked for good scores on that to hire secretaries. And so completely randomly wound up there, worked there for a couple years, and went to um, DNA. When there was a job for like a publication technician, which was the kind of work I w- had been doing at the tax yeah. court, and then um, I quickly moved into this um, opening for a junior reporter on something called Transfer Pricing Report that w- had just started the year before, yep. and um, and the rest is history. That's I was great. there for about twenty four years. Wow. I don't know and then move to law 360. No one would ever guess that
1: looking at you. 24
2: years. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's such a double-edged sword. Like the the, the comments about, oh, you look so young. don't you think I have experience? Right, right.
1: <laughs> so, you know, we, we talk to transfer pricing professionals all the time, and, and it's interesting because I think as a journalist, you sort of have a different angle. You've been able to talk to a lot of different people, experts in the field and in certain fields, and so you probably have a broad perspective. But what about transfer pricing has sort of kept you continuing to write about transfer pricing and, and digging into it a bit deeper? It's
2: um, I mean, it, it's just endlessly fascinating and it's changed so much over the years I mean it, it in the what I think of as the heyday it was a cottage industry I mean mm-hmm. you know it was under the radar you'd go to these conferences and people like in the 90s they were that was when everybody was restructuring to and the you know the tax planning got got really aggressive um, yeah, yeah I mean you said it I didn't <laughs> <laughs> but um, as a um, young reporter I would I would be at these conferences and people would show um, like, well, here's your company structure now, and there would be like a triangle and a couple boxes, and here's what you could do, and then there would be like 16 boxes and arrows all over the place. And I remember thinking, that doesn't seem very efficient, but right. it was the tax savings was significant you know, significant, and so everybody started doing that and then I mean years later I think that sort of caught up with companies it did. And, yep. and now it, it's just such a different environment you know I used to be able to just call up anybody at you know a firm or the big four or a law firms who would work in transfer pricing and and you know they would tell me what the IRS was doing and 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 I would be able to write an enterprise story pretty easily now oh my gosh the access is so hard you have to go through the press because everybody you want to talk to has somebody you've got to go through and um or uh, other than academics. Academics are kind of the exception. We're right, relying right. on them a, a bit more now in our
1: reporting. Well, that's probably because of uh, the reputational damage, I think. Transfer mm. pricing in a lot of ways right. is becoming yeah. like a, a, a bad word. Or <laughs> It's
2: not just the tax authorities yeah. anymore you right. have to worry about. I mean, it's it's like Tax Watch and yep. Tax Justice Network and... and um, And that that's been interesting too. The seeing all the um, the voluntary disclosure Mm -hmm. that, like I guess Shell recently. Yeah, I was reading that that report. Yes, fascinating. It's amazing. And and even like it it does show they've got some, I don't know, maybe aggressive tax planning or they're they're doing some stuff that doesn't seem to make sense to like the Tax Justice Network types, and um, and they're still putting it out there, so.
1: So, uh, you know, I, I mean, you've, you you clearly have had a, a long history when it comes to transfer pricing. You've seen a lot of uh, multinationals and heard a lot of what they've been doing. And what mistake do you think multinationals have, what mistake, what's the biggest mistake you see them doing? Yeah, I, I wish I had more yeah.
2: information about all those mistakes because <laughs> uh, people don't really want to tell me that. But right. um, it. I think, I mean, just uh, overall, it it's sort of losing perspective maybe mm-hmm. just um like not not realizing that public a- attention is being paid to um aggressive tax
1: planning yeah well when you said losing perspective it it, it, it in my mind, that picture of the the tax structure that you were you were telling me about, where hey, it was this is you now, and this could be you with like sixteen additional entities right. everywhere, right? Yeah. You know, when we think about permanent establishments, right? So we we um, we recently saw a survey conducted by one of the big four. I won't name names, um, but they they actually did a survey, and in that survey, um, intangible property and permanent establishment were identified as as two key pressure points, right? And so a couple of things about that survey just for everybody's edification. So 20% of the respondents said permanent establishments have been the cause of transfer pricing tax controversy, right? And then, you know, over the next two years about 40% of the respondents expect permanent establishment to become even more controversial. In the same survey, I think one in five tax executives say that within the past three years, their companies have experienced disputes surrounding permanent establishment. And of that, 11% say that the dispute was focused on the allocation of profits versus 9% say that the issue was the assertion of the PE itself. And Molly, earlier you were talking a little bit about this. And you had a you had some thoughts on that particular yeah. statistic, right? I
2: think it's interesting that, that that's kind of an even split yeah and um, I remember like kind of in the um, the older days of the um, the APA program and there was kind of a turf battle over whether they could um, deal with the question of the the threshold question of PE as well as the allocation question and they for a while they weren't supposed to do that they had to be done by another part of the IRS and um, it's just interesting to me that the that those, the questions of the, do you have a PE and what's the allocation have sort of mushed together Mm -hmm. recently, especially under BEPS, because, um, I mean, you you hear, I used to hear people get up at conferences and the, like, I don't know, in the earlier days of the BEPS uh, project, like 2014, 2015, and, and they would, you know, they were just apoplectic about all these PEs that were just suddenly popping up everywhere and You got a cable you know, there. There's a PE. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so. and it's it, it just did seem a little absurd that yeah. you know, like with the Netflix case, yes. you've got a cable, you've got a PE. I mean yes. so I gotta file a tax return, I've gotta do this, I gotta do that. I mean it it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense.
1: Right. So. But but the concept is getting more challenging, I think. And then just to wrap you know, close the loop on the statistic on that survey, so forty one percent of those cases, there was an adjustment. And in in 18% of them, there was a penalties, right? So uh, the idea of a permanent establishment is creating a lot of controversy, and I think you know a lot of focus has been around PEs as it pertains to uh, commissionaires, sales agents, and things of that nature. Um, and then the other issues relate to about you know 47% related to the provision of services and and different reasons why you know PEs existed. I was talking to Molly earlier today, and I was saying. It was such a difficult concept to get my hands around in the beginning right this idea (laughs) of permanent establishment because you know in some cases when you see a sales office in a jurisdiction you're like well no okay as a company you have a PE there you have an entity Mm -hmm. where you're paying taxes and yet a tax authority can come in and assert that you know your U.S. company has a corporate PE in that jurisdiction, right? It's, right? It, it's
2: a little mind-bending. Yeah. It's like, what is that thing? Is it a ghost? Is it a you know? <laughs> it's like <laughs> sort of magical, you know? Yeah,
1: and, and and it's an opportunity to increase their taxable income base, right? Instead of taxing on that particular type of service or activity, they want to tax on the actual sale of the product, for example. Right, right? and so let's start with this idea and the let's define permanent establishment first and foremost, right? I mean, it's it's a fixed place of business that generally increases tax liability in a particular jurisdiction, right? A fixed place of business. And so right now, the, the challenge, I think, with this idea of PEs is this notion of the digital economy. And so basically, tax jurisdictions are now looking at that, um, and, and they're trying to capture um, a piece of that taxable income as a Post, as it relates to this new concept of the digital economy because this is a new business model. I mean, tax laws and codes weren't written to address this sort of exactly. new economy, right? And so right now, the the definition of permanent establishment is, is a little bit broader, right, Molly? Mm-hmm. It's definitely
2: broader. Um, and um, although I guess India just put off their significant economic presence test by a couple years, but I mean, um, yeah, it's... I I guess that um, with BEPS, they um, broadened the definition in that you can have a a PE where you've got a significant economic presence, and you've got, you know, what does that exactly mean? And then there's, I guess, there's a bit of a parallel between data centers and warehouses. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I was talking to somebody about this issue, and he said, well, could you sort of torture a data warehouse, essentially, into that exception for um, the... I guess the the big exception was for ancillary and preparatory, or yeah, or yep. maybe it's or yeah, it's or. or. <laughs> and um, you know, d- does that um, exception still apply? Is that something that that companies are are looking at or looking to to sort of get out of PE? Or is it more of a question of there are just these things cropping up that that they never thought would be a PE? I mean, how um, deliberate is? Is some, are some of these structures
1: right, and and any country can basically define PE that the way that they want. There's no consistent definition of right. what constitutes right. a permanent establishment, right? Like, and
2: how much do you have in the way of resources to uh, litigate that stuff? I mean, Netflix obviously has um, plenty, but
1: um, I think they have a dedicated transfer pricing team too. Yes. So. Yeah, I'm sure,
2: <laughs> but um,
1: not every company has that luxury,
2: right? Yeah. And and there's some of the the cases on the margins, like. Um, well when when we talk about the um the data centers in the uh, some of the Scandinavian countries i mean from from what i gather those i mean they they're so big there's not a question of whether that's a taxable entity and yep. so there's a a way that you deal with that and they are but then there are those um pop sites um that that might be a tougher case you don't really know mm-hmm. whether that would meet the exception or not yeah
0: Um. a global pandemic a grim economic forecast feeling the squeeze an r&d tax credit can help lower your burn if you qualify the irs and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10 percent of your company's spend on development activities you can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red all you have to do is claim it
1: I think it was probably in like one of our first two Fiona show podcasts we talked about uh, Facebook and how the these sort of platforms it's it's there's been a question of where value is created because yeah. value is also a key driver of what defines a PE right mm. and like potential PE risk I don't know if you have any perspective or thoughts on like you know the Facebook type of business model and where you think value might be created yeah well that's um, that's seems like more of a digital tax yep. question it's hard to talk about PE
2: yep. without talking just veering into digital everything tax. yes yes because and, and it's what creates value does it happen just because somebody grabs your data I mean well you know there's the whole thing about uh, in Europe where they're struggling with um, how to grab digital revenue and yep. what that's based yep. on. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's very tricky. It's tricky.
0: And Matthew here taking a quick break from Tarrytown to interject with a question for Fiona. Fiona, why are so many countries in Europe trying to attract data centers?
3: Well, Matt, as the digital economy grows, there will be a greater need for data centers. So many countries are trying to bring them in, courting companies with generous tax incentives. Microsoft is planning to build data centers in Sweden because of its generous tax cuts on energy taxes. Data centers do require a lot of energy, as you can imagine.
0: I can, Fiona. And that does sound like a good idea for a CPE code word, if I may say so myself. So let's make that the first CPE code word, and that is incentives, as in countries court MNEs to put data centers in their jurisdictions with generous tax incentives. And back to Mimi in Mali in Sarasota
1: let's talk about the physical assets of a company like the Facebook going to the servers right where are the servers located and that constitutes a PE at this point right
2: I guess so yeah Yeah. and uh, I guess there's different ways you can structure it where you have you know a local company manage that and then I I guess maybe the simple way is to have a
1: um, just a service fee I mean and, and if you think about transfer pricing and PEs in its simplest format it's the concept is that you would pay a fee to a company some arm's length fee, some price for the activities that they're going to perform on your behalf. And to your point about service, providing a service, right? Mm-hmm. And you're servicing and, and supporting the servers in that location, does that necessarily mean that you have a, a PE in that jurisdiction? Probably not, because purely based on the arm's length principle and this concept of, okay, well, I would pay a third party to do this. Right. Right? right. Yeah. I mean, that's simple. But I think it, it'll get even more complex when we think about cloud-based services. Oh, yeah. Server in certain jurisdictions, because mm-hmm. now, like the the, the farms—I don't know what you call them. I guess they call them server farms right, or cloud right, farms. Yeah. yeah, it's not literally in the cloud. I yeah. <laughs> they, they have a physical presence somewhere. Right, um, right. Um, and th- there's
2: cloud computing is really um, interesting too. Like there, uh, one of my colleagues, Alex Parker, wrote about um, this radio station in the 40s. I guess it's the Piedras Negras case or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, that there was I guess sort of an early kind of nexus question so I, I guess we've been kind of struggling with with some of this for a long time yeah but that, that story was very interesting and so
1: what constitutes PE risk at this point in time right like
2: uh, yeah what well, does because is it is it the risk that you'll just have something you didn't think about and you suddenly have filing requirements yeah or is it that um, I don't know you you didn't um, Structured things correctly, and you're not paying the right price. I think it's more the the just surprise of oh, you've got this entity, you didn't, yep. and, um, and you didn't do it right. And, and and that I
1: guess yeah. there's probably more scope for a penalty if you just and and, and it's not ignored it, but you just didn't realize that yeah, that was a right. PE right.
2: Or if you ignored it, it's because you
1: thought, thought it was not important, right? Yeah, exactly. Right, yeah. and so so and why is PE is why is it so important in terms of transfer pricing?
0: Matt DeMello gently interjecting here from cross borders Terrytown offices for a moment to suggest we ask Fiona about that. Fiona, why is permanent establishment so important in terms of transfer pricing?
3: Well, Matt, as we said, the definition varies, but it's important because in some places, only transactions between a non-resident and its permanent establishment qualify as controlled transactions and thus are subject to transfer pricing rules. Also, permanent establishments have to pay local taxes. If there are questions about permanent establishments, that could lead to double taxation. And as you know, that's never good.
0: Thank you, Fiona. And you know what? Let's make establishments one of our CPE code words, too. Our second CPE code word in that case is establishments, as in permanent establishment, the very subject of Mimi and Molly's discussion in Sarasota, to which we now return.
2: I guess you just need to know what tax authorities are, are going to focus on. But I mean, I think that these server situations in the Nordic countries, mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's not under the radar at all, right? Because yep. it's deliberate decision by, say, Microsoft to open something there. And it's that's not a, a tough case necessarily. Well,
1: they're opening up the, the cloud server farms in certain jurisdictions because countries are providing tax incentives. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. And that,
2: but that's an interesting question because um, I was talking to people about that. And and somebody I talked to said that that could be a state aid issue because yes. the thing about I guess Microsoft is you know they're a big company and they've got all these um, resources and and they they can afford to um, to locate there and take advantage of this um, there's an energy tax credit that it's it's a really huge break, but the local companies are somehow not able to take advantage of that in the same way mm-hmm. and to me that i mean doesn't that seem like something that the EU could look at and say, "Well, actually, no. Swe- Sweden is not in the EU, right?" Yeah, but,
1: right. yeah, but still, I mean, state aid is a whole right. other yeah, ball yeah. of wax these days. <laughs>
2: right. So that that seems to have maybe died down a, a little bit, but uh, I, I'm not sure.
1: For now. Yeah, yeah. For now, I mean, but the, the yeah, we could we could talk about that too. But anyways, going back to permanent establishment <laughs> risk in general, I, I think, I, I think the challenge here is if if they do deem that you have a PE all of a sudden your tax position changes they apply an adjustment and then you'd be subject to double taxation at the end of the day right right so So. it's an important matter to address and what is the PE risk associated with my particular entity and in the country where I have operations so of that survey I think 40 percent of respondents actually say that challenges to the transfer pricing have resulted in double taxation at the end of the day that is what Mm -hmm. it is what are other things that we need to keep in mind to avoid double taxation?
2: Um, that's a great question because it almost seems like it's the, the cost of doing business these days and, yeah. and at least in some places, um, I mean, probably people don't wanna hear that, but <laughs> I mean, there's uh, certainty is so hard to come by <laughs> anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And the traditional route for that has been an APA, but. I mean how how much would it cost to get an APA for I can tell you you how much it costs. well
1: I was at my bank (laughs) it was very expensive but and (laughs) and,
2: you know to how do you build in stuff that you might not even know is gonna have a trigger a problem right right yeah I, I guess there's a lot to weigh if you're a multinational
1: company yeah no tax certainty is not the norm these days Right. Yeah, so. tax uncertainty is, is where it's at right now, especially in light of tax reform and all the different changes on a global basis. So permanent establishment, going back to this idea of you know permanent establishment in the digital economy, I know we're sort of there's there's two angles when it comes to the digital economy, right? Uh, we talked about the tax and incentives to draw different data centers to their jurisdiction, um, and are there other examples of like the tax breaks, you know? besides just some of the Scandinavian countries offering incentives to bring in the data centers? Anywhere else that you were you're thinking of? Um,
2: I'm not um, really aware of tax breaks other than in the Scandinavian countries, okay. but um, I mean, what, what I've been wondering is are there um, interactions with some of the, the US provisions? I mean, I'm not a tax planner myself or a, a practitioner. but um,
1: Well, it, it actually could, uh, it could trigger beat tax, right? So the base right. version, yeah. So b- because basically you're, you're, it's an outbound service payment. You have a data center in certain Scandinavian countries. And if, if you're a cloud-based company, well, then, yeah, you're going to make some sort of payment for that level of service right. to that particular country. Potentially, because it's a service payment, you're going to trigger a This is to- a
2: couple years ago. But I remember talking to somebody. I think there was an ABA uh, program on um beaten transfer pricing and how it interacted and um and it was it, it's pretty interesting that there's a like a threshold that where you you're either in the beat or you're out of, out the, out beat. of the beat yeah. and it, it seems like a, it's the opposite of what you would have wanted to do you would have wanted a low royalty payment going out. That we would be to,
1: for like a yeah. gu, so then there's the guilty tax and it, then, then there's the fitty tax, right? So the foreign derived intangible income versus right. the global intangible low tax income. Which is actually the acronym is, is so appropriate because it's basically saying you're guilty of paying migrating IP offshore. <laughs> so, right. Um, but it,
2: this was more of a like, you know, if the 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 transfer pricing incentives was were counter to the to what to they the wanted you to, to mm-hmm. do and there's there's like a sweet spot but with the with your level of the royalty payment yeah but
1: it, it, it's and it's probably different for every company by the right, way, right yeah, yeah. All, very different depending on every company's facts and circumstances but so you, earlier you were talking a little bit about servers versus warehouses right mm-hmm. so let's set the stage here warehouses don't qualify for permanent establishments
2: or they they are permanent establishments. They are aren't permanent. Yeah. Well, yeah. They so they don't qualify for the. Yes. Yeah, well,
1: are either? they right? Or I mean, what is, you know, the test for the PE, right? Having a fixed place of business, yep. carrying on the business of the enterprise, mm-hmm. and and then not meeting the exception for the preparatory or auxiliary activities.
2: A warehouse, a data warehouse, absolutely would be a PE. I mean, it's a fixed place of business. It's carrying on the, the business, and it, I mean, it 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 doesn't seem like there's any other way to to look at that
1: and then but what about that third trigger right the whole preparatory or auxiliary yeah i mean
2: i guess that would just depend on the on the activities i mean but i mean i think that that in like again in the case of a a really big server farm like something microsoft is doing that's not much of a question it's part of the core business wouldn't it be i mean
1: the farm itself, sure. But so. um, perhaps, what about? Uh, so the farm it creates a PE, but then, what if there were support services being rendered by uh, people in the UK, right? Right, and um, there are
2: some really specific cases where I think there were. If, if you really want to get into the weeds, there there were a couple of cases that people pointed me to. There was this 2012 one out of Canada, mm-hmm. and a uh, 2016 out of um, uh, the, the Danish PE case. Mm-hmm. And those, if, if you just examine those, they this is a classic case of how to avoid PE status. But I don't know if that's going to work for everybody. In the Canadian case, it was um, you know it was a request for a ruling, so they obviously thought pretty hard about how to structure this so
1: and then and then i mean when it comes to netflix right now right and then the the challenges that netflix is facing i mean what's your perspective do you think that italy has a case I
2: don't think so. I mean, uh, they're they're known to be pretty aggressive and- um, They're known to have machine guns. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) aren't aren't they one of the countries that does the raids?
1: Yes, they do the raids, it's scary.
2: Yeah, yeah, so I guess there are different ways (laughs) of enforcement, I mean.
1: So uh, listen, I I think we, permanent establishment is always going to be a topic of controversy, especially when we're talking about a term that is not defined consistently across every different jurisdiction, and it's going to continue to be debated in terms of what constitutes a permanent establishment. And and by the way, it's funny because PE and the the concept of nexus, I'm like, Mm. aren't they the same thing too? So. (laughs) Right.
2: Yeah. And then there's the the wayfair that's sort of yeah you know everybody's and then the looking at that, that's
1: right so. you know along those lines that's that's the only reason i convinced my husband to originally move to new jersey because um, well this is pre wayfair because you didn't have to pay taxes on purchases that you made on amazon because they didn't have a warehouse there mm-hmm but now they do, so that was a moot point. Anyways, we moved outside of New Jersey, we're in New York now, it doesn't matter. (laughs) But, you know, so so right now I think, what are the takeaways here in terms of of transfer pricing? Right? (laughs) Um,
2: That is a great question. (laughs) Um, I I guess just be aware of, you know, the Netflix case and how just just random things might just trigger uh, a presence that you might not have thought about, um, but not in n- not in every country. I mean, yep. like in Italy, I guess we know that, that that's a thing. Well, but, this
1: could uh, set a precedent. I mean, if Italy yeah. somehow comes out on top and says your cables constituted a permanent establishment, every country is going to go after that. I think. Yeah, that does seem. Um, it's like a wildfire. It, it, yeah, it is. Yeah. Anyways, so. I, I everyone, we're really happy that you were able to join us, Molly, and this has been. Awesome. I I love to get your perspective. And like I said, I think it's great. I love having these guests because you see their names a lot. Transfer pricing is a small world. And so we'll definitely have to have her back as well. But everybody, let's thank Molly Moses.
0: Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show, Cross-Border Solutions weekly transfer pricing podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University every Tuesday and Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai/tpu. Our rapid fire segment for time in sarasota we were able to catch up with molly in the time since over the phone for my favorite part of the show you're an avid interviewer how do you make interviewees feel comfortable
2: um that doesn't come up as often as you might think it's often done um by writing and when it does happen live um it's not usually an issue. I'm usually talking to people who are fairly comfortable already. It's more of a, um, a qu- the, the hard part is getting them to agree to talk to me, really. Yeah. Um, because people well, have gotten so media shy. So you know, folks at the IRS or um, I don't know, even corporations now, they're they're just very leery of saying anything that's um, that's going to um, you know name a client or or make their clients mad or anything like that
0: really rattle any cages we found this uh you know a lot of course in asking folks to come on and talk about their transfer pricing that can open a lot of floodgates that uh they might they might not be so willing to open uh but how do you <laughs> right. handle your not- you, go I ahead
2: floodgates. <laughs> i'm sorry i I'm, those floodgates have not opened for me, me <laughs> very clear
0: <laughs> yes yes and how do you handle your bleep hit the fan moments
2: Um, that would be for, for people who, uh, write and, you know, for, for journalists, that is, you know, when something gets printed, that is wrong. Um, and that happens rarely, but, um, but actually my philosophy on that is also that corrections are something any news outfit has to deal with. And the, more they are directly tied to output unless you've got somebody who's a real problem it's just the more productive people are the more they're going to have corrections because they're doing their jobs and people make mistakes and so we just try to um, you know, be honest about it and and run a correction.
0: Yeah, yeah. But I like
2: that, you know, we obviously try to keep that to a minimum.
0: Of course. Um, But there's only, I I know this from copy editing when I've worked in editorial, I I mean, the goalie syndrome can only be so pervasive before you kind of have to draw a line with it and say, you know, we're human beings. Yeah,
2: yeah.
0: So Um, how would you describe your biggest career or
2: job pet peeves? Oh man, pet peeves are fun. Where do I start? Uh, um, I guess uh, the just the, the growing um, uh, hesitation of people to speak on the record oh and the catam house rule that's my big pet peeve where you have these closed door meetings and oh, if you want to quote anything you have to check that with the speakers and that's I mean and, and meanwhile the um, you know people who are not reporters are tweeting about this meeting and, you know, that. that and quoting is, it, right. Yeah, I mean, come on, it's on the record or it's off the record, but and this, this half in between stuff is really annoying.
0: Right, it almost elevates, uh, you know, the PR folks or at least those aligned with the, the, the folks messaging. So, uh, you know, messaging ends up becoming more important. Um, or elevated than, than re- reporting, and they're very two very different things, of course. If I wasn't an, an incredibly amazing investigative reporter, I'd be a
2: um, let's see, maybe a uh, an arm. I'm an armchair gardener, I guess. Um, so maybe I'd, I'd be somebody who uh, has some nice land and and uh, can can grow tomatoes and other stuff, and um, it's just. Sustained myself that way, yeah. but um, I don't think that's particularly realistic because I can't really keep anything alive in my yard. so
0: <laughs> well th- you know if you're not spending all that time investigative reporting, you can uh, you know gain even more uh, agricultural skills and, and live out your your farmer dreams. Right,
2: right. I think those are dreams for a reason,
0: <laughs> <laughs> and uh, as someone who is plugged in with tax authorities governing organizations and in-house economists all over the planet, what's your biggest piece of advice to multinational companies?
2: Um, I wish I were more plugged in honestly, um, but I, I think that that um, they need to uh, don't lose perspective you know don't try so hard with your tax planning that that you Look bad to the public, but I think everybody's gotten that message, so I I don't know that I need to tell them that. But uh, if I could tell them to. To behave in a way that I want, I would say, grant me, inter- me an interview. I'll be fair. And, uh,
0: yeah. <laughs> right. That sort of perspective is at least important, even more than just uh, you know avoiding bad headlines. But undermining tax to the point of undermining the whole institution really invites uh, much more than bad press, uh, which is I think something that we're we're seeing uh, you know in various places throughout the world and, and uh, also kind of in the in the echo chambers where these stories repeat, and then end up in bad press for folks. And we want to thank Molly again for joining us for our quarter one summit. It may not be a sunny where you are, but you can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. While you're there, be sure to check out our sister podcast, The Fiona Show, Hot Off the Press, where we give you the latest on trends in reg changes across the world of transfer pricing every week. This podcast, along with our client episode with Doug Darling of KCI last week, was edited by Andrew O'Donnell. Many thanks Thanks to Andrew for also running our sound equipment in Sarasota. They let yours truly Matthew DeMello engineer and host this podcast. Marilyn Lynn Mitchum Strom, our executive producer writes our scripts. We'll catch everyone next week.